Hi, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today, I am joined by yet another guest co-host, a good friend of mine, Chandler Mays. Hello. Hello, Chandler. I'm so glad that you <laughs> agreed to go on this journey with me. Reluctantly. You, it is reluctantly, yes. But I, Chandler and I have been friends for a while. How many years now? Oh, gosh. Seven. Seven. Let's just Ish. say seven. Seven is yeah. good. Uh, we've been friends for a while, and we have this tradition where on Halloween, we try to watch a lot of horror movies. As many as possible. We're very ambitious. Um, Annie's ambitious. <laughs> yes. If it were up to Annie, we could probably tackle... We'd probably still be watching horror them films in the month of October alone. Yeah, yeah. It would just be constant, no sleep horror movies. Pretty much. But uh, this year, we were watching... Rosemary's Baby, which for me, it's been the first time since I've that I've seen that movie in a long time. I think, I think I saw it when I was in maybe freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. So it, it has been a while. I'll let you listeners guess as to how long that is, <laughs> but it has been a lot a while. And um, we it sparked a conversation about this question that I think a lot of us have been wrestling with in the era of Me Too. And that is, what do we do with the art that we love that is created by monstrous people or at the very least, very problematic people? And how do we feel about it? And I want to go ahead and say right at the front, this episode is probably going to be frustrating for a lot of people because there is no neat, clear-cut answer. I was looking for one. There is not one. It's really intensely personal and I can't tell you how to interact with the art that you enjoy. No one really can. It's up to you. I agree. It's very subjective. And I don't don't have an answer in the slightest, a clear-cut answer. And that's part of the reason why I agreed to do this, because I feel like it'll help me just navigate the territory a little bit more, or at least be a little bit more at peace with experiencing art that that's created by a problematic person. Right. And... And in some cases, a monster. (laughs) In some cases, in some cases. A quick trigger warning here. We will be talking about Me Too and sexual assault in this episode. And I wanted to preface this whole conversation with a reminder that we're having this conversation around art. But at the heart of it, what we're talking about is the symptom of so many societal problems like misogyny and sexism, lack of respect for women, racism, We wouldn't have to talk about this at all unless so many people in the art world weren't committing crimes. And until we've dealt with those issues at their core, we're going to have to keep wrestling with this. Um, I don't want to lose sight of that while we're delving into this topic. It sort of reminds me of that SNL skit, Welcome to Hell, where it's five women singing this super upbeat pop song about how, oh, we're so sorry, dudes. I know it sucks you can't enjoy House of Cards anymore, but... Women don't feel safe walking to our cars alone. Or earlier this year, that comment about how it's a really scary time for men because could be accused of sexual assault at any time. And we've heard it over and over from so many male artists. Um, we don't want to start a witch hunt, do we? Don't get don't get too caught up in this. And um, the artist who committed the crime or crimes is the one to blame in these cases that we're talking about. And 
they have to face the consequences of their actions. They need to be held accountable. And these, their actions cause ripple effects of harm. Making good art does not excuse horrendous behavior. So there are a lot of things at play in this conversation. A lot, a lot, a lot of things. So we're going to look specifically at the case of Rosemary's Baby because it is an excellent case study. On what <laughs> Perhaps we're one of about. the best case studies. I, I'm hard-pressed to think of a better case study. Maybe Woody Allen's Manhattan. Oh, you're right. And we are going to talk about oh, that as well. Yeah. Um, and, and we're going to zoom out from these very specific examples to try to give you some kind of a, a, a map or a compass through this very rocky terrain that we find ourselves in. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so for people who don't know what Rosemary's Baby is, and you you are interested in seeing it, you don't want to be spoiled, go watch it now, because we're going to spoil the heck out of it. Hit pause. Yeah, yeah. Hit pause, come back, and you will be fresh, ready to... Hit pause ready here, to, hit play there. <laughs> right. You'll be ready to really take in to absorb all of what we're saying. Let's get everybody on the same page. Can you can you describe Rosemary's Baby? Uh, so, in 1965, Guy and Rosemary Woodstock move into this apartment complex in New York City called the Bramford Apartment Building. Which is a very nice apartment building. Yeah, it's... Stupid expensive. Yeah. I think even by 60s standards, I don't think, I feel like that's just the story of every character that lives in a TV show or movie in Manhattan. Like, their real-life income would not be able to support oh, sure. living there. It was made in 1968, uh, this movie, and it was based on a book by Ira Levin, who also wrote Stepford Wives, by the way. Oh. Yeah. Some <laughs> and- similarities there. It was directed by Roman Polanski, and it starred Mia Farrow as Rosemary. And on the surface, it's a movie about a husband trading his wife's body, specifically her womb, to a cult and to Satan himself in exchange for fame. And that is certainly frightening, but what has given it so much staying power and what has made it so scary to this day is the undercurrent of paranoia, of gaslighting, of gender dynamics, and that whole, why didn't you believe her thing that we did a whole episode on? These things that women face in close relationships like with a spouse or with a doctor and on a societal level. All of this remains relevant to this day. It's like kind of eerie watching it. Yeah, it's like the textbook example, especially of gaslighting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it is gaslighting. You look up gaslighting, you're like, it should just say, watch Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> yes, it should. It has a picture of Guy, her husband, and it's like, that. That's that. exactly what it was. <laughs> Jordan Peele, who wrote and directed Get Out, uh, names Rosemary's Baby as probably, in quotes, his favorite film and one of the main influences for Get Out. And he said of Rosemary's Baby, quote, it's a film about gender. It's about men making decisions about women's bodies behind their backs. And again, that feels super relevant to this day. There's a scene very early on in Rosemary's Baby that captures a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. When Rosemary's husband, Guy, is trying to convince her to eat this chocolate mousse. And uh, this chocolate mousse was prepared by their neighbors, these kind of older, seemingly harmless neighbors. Right, yeah, they meet the neighbors within 
I don't know, it just seems like a matter of days of when they actually moved in. Yeah. So, wait, were they, did they meet the neighbors when they were, like, actually checking out the apartment? I think so. They, they yeah, the neighbors were there very early on in there. <laughs> right. So, they meet the neighbors, go over there for drinks just to get to know them, mm-hmm. and that is, I'm assuming, the moment that... um Cassavetes, yeah, yeah. Mr. Cassavetes approaches Guy off screen and says, we're, we're looking to uh, we're in the find market a, we're in the for market a womb. For a womb. <laughs> right, for Satan. <laughs> for Satan's, for Satan's uh, earthly child. Yeah. And uh, I think your wife would be perfect. And if you, if you give us your wife's womb, then you will become a famous actor. That's yeah. That's probably the gist of how that conversation went. Yeah, and apparently he agrees quite readily. Immediately. <laughs> yeah. Because they met each other. Uh-huh. They hung out that night, and it was the following night that Guy was like, let's have a baby. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, Rosemary had wanted a baby, and he had been kind of reticent. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, you know what? It's baby let's time. Let's do it. Let's do I've it. I've changed my mind. And then the neighbors show up with this chocolate mousse. And... Rosemary says, she takes a taste of it, and she says, I don't really like it. It's kind of chalky. And Guy says, I don't know what you're talking about. Tastes fine to me. Tastes fine to me. And she's still kind of iffy about it, so then he tries to guilt her, saying that the old bat slaved away. Yeah. Yep. Um, something, Something along those lines. And when that doesn't work, he flips it around so that she's being the unreasonable one, saying, there's always something wrong. Right, right. Which is gaslighting 101. For sure, yeah. Yeah. And and so she she eats some of it. She doesn't eat all of it. She she like spits some out in a napkin. Right, because it tastes like chalk. Because it doesn't taste good. Um, but it's enough where she's drugged and she kind of wakes up while she's being raped by Satan himself. Yeah, that's actually a crazy kind of dream sequence that goes down right there. You don't really know what she's seeing, how much of what she's seeing and hearing is actually happening or not. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think most of the things she hears people say seem to be actually what was said. Like, I think there's one point where guys like, do you need to paint that on her? Does she need to be tied down like that or this and that? Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's all part of the ritual. Yeah. It's fine. And then somebody asked her like, is this music bothering you? And... Yeah. She was so nice about it, even in her drug state. She's like, oh, no, don't change the music on, on my account. Yeah. That's oh, fine. It's fine. But, yeah, she's just unwillingly a part of this horrific sex ritual where she is raped by, I'm assuming, Lucifer himself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, another kind of interesting point there is that Guy did... <laughs> He made this decision complete without her, obviously, but it, it does kind of reinforce that idea that women, the the control of their body is being taken away. Like, their body isn't their own. It's something that men are... It's exactly, yeah. It's, it's for him, whatever he intends to do with it, for his benefit or his pleasure. Right. That's, that's what she's there for. Right. Uh, which is horrifying, and that scene is very disturbing. It's effective. Oh, yeah. And at the end, she, yeah, she's sort of, 
hallucinating, drifting in and out. And she says the, the iconic line, this is no dream. This is no dream. This is really happening. Right. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Great Mia Farrow impression. That was my Rosemary impression. I liked it. I liked it. And Okay, so when she wakes up the next morning, she has these angry fingernail scratches down her back. And to me, this is one of the most disturbing scenes because it shows you how much things have changed. Her husband, Guy, makes fun of her for getting so drunk that she passed out and tells her that he had sex with her unconscious body rather than missing, quote, baby night. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and because because they were trying to get pregnant, and he says this awful thing in a jokey, jokey way, like, "Oh, well, I didn't want to miss baby night." Um, and then, like, she said something like, "Oh man, that was a horrible nightmare," or yeah. something like that. And he was like, "Oh well, thanks a lot," like yes. making her feel guilty. And he says it was fun in a necrophile sort of way. Um, man, that that did not go over well. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, and they move on. They they move on, but it is worth noting, I think, that uh, both Rosemary and the audience are not meant to regard this dismissal of guys without suspicion. You're not meant to be on his side. You're you're suspicious of him when oh, he for says sure. this stuff. Um, I mean, this movie does a good job of making you suspicious of everything and everyone around Rosemary from the jump, like yeah. from the moment the first you see the first shot of the movie, you're like, I'm suspicious of this whole scene. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite types of horror movies. I love being suspicious of everything. I love when tropes play into themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, like even when they're viewing the apartment uh, before they move in, there was like that giant, uh, what do you call that? An armoire or yeah. like a giant dresser right? that was like strangely pushed into the back of the hallway. Mm-hmm. And then when they move it, they're like, oh, it's just a closet on the other side. Right. And you're like, well, that's weird. That's so you're strange. immediately like, that's off. And right. then she's, she read that letter uh, from the previous tenant, but it was like an unfinished letter. Right. I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was some of the effect of like, I cannot be a part of this anymore. And then right. it just like, the, it cuts off mid-sentence. Yeah. So you're like, well, something terrible just happened here. Right. And that's just how they set the scene. Uh, yes. And uh, you're already on edge, or you're like looking for these things because you're watching mm-hmm. a a scary, a scary movie. Um, and also worth noting is that marital rape wasn't illegal when this was made, and laws against it wouldn't start cropping up in the states until the 70s. It wasn't outlawed in all 50 states until 1993. 93? 93. That's that's mind-blowing. That's scary. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And speaking of timing, the timing of this movie is interesting, too, between the 50s housewives, but before the 70s livers... The first birth control pills were entering the market. Roe v. Wade was around the corner. American women were losing more and more control of their bodies. And this movie comes out, and it seems to be tapping into all of this, which is made all the more fascinating by the fact that Roman Polanski, a dude, is the one that kind of, although (laughs) apparently he didn't know it was based on a book. He thought that it was going to be directly... Like, he wouldn't have any creative... Um, he, he had to stick to the book directly. Like, he didn't realize how, I guess, adaptations work. Like, he didn't realize he had creative agency. and Like, yes. he could have changed some things. He yes. could have made... He could have left a scene out or kept a scene in or yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. He thought he had to stick to the book pretty directly. Which I guess, in turn, would make this, like, the most faithful adaptation in the history of... <laughs> 
Ooh. film adaptations, right? If somebody has read the book, um, let us know. Like, is there any stone not left unturned? Like, yeah, is the movie exactly the same as the book? Oh my goodness, I would love to know. And also, if you have your your submissions for least faithful adaptation, I submit The Shining. I would love to hear your submissions <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's so much of this movie does feel oddly, disconcertingly relevant. Um, undercutting a woman's decisions, everything from her choice of haircut. I forgot how much they make fun of her her haircut and demean it. Um, to her decisions about her health, uh, the constant gaslighting and dismissal of Rosemary, calling her hysterical. A uh, guy throws away her health books at one point for putting, quote, funny ideas in her head. That's just rude. Yeah, right? And her doctor, who is also a cult member, by the way, we, we, the first doctor, because she does go to a second, uh, yells at her when she brings up pelvic pain that she's experiencing um, and that maybe, based on the book she's reading, maybe she's got ectopic pregnancy. Uh, but the doctor says, I thought you weren't going to read books. <laughs> Lady. <laughs> you silly woman. <laughs> you don't understand. Reading words in a book. I thought we had an agreement. You wouldn't Leave that, that to us. <laughs> Leave that to the professionals. And there's one scene that really stood out to me in a recent viewing, and we were, we were just talking about this, when um, Rosemary is tired of hanging out with all these old folks in their apartment building, so she wants to throw a Yeah, party. most of the... The occult, most of the Satanists in this, what would you call it? A, a group of Satan, a coven? A uh, cult. A cult or a coven? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Most of the Satanists in this cult are extremely old. She's definitely the youngest character in the in the whole story, save for this one party that she throws. Right, and, and mm-hmm. I mean obviously, but she doesn't know they're cultists or in a coven. Mm-hmm. But she she does. She's got this feeling. She's surrounded by elders. She is. And she wants to throw a party with people more her age and her friends. Um, And Guy's totally against the idea, of course. Um, But she throws it nonetheless. And at one part, in the middle of the party, she kind of retreats to the kitchen. And she's crying with pain uh, of her pregnancy. And... Yeah, what's going on there? She's in pain because it's basically like... It's Satan's baby. It's Satan's like, baby, and I'm sure he's just not making it easy on her. I'm not sure if this is true, but I always got the sense that, like, up until that point, maybe it wouldn't take. Um, maybe there would have right. been a possibility of miscarriage. Maybe she's not strong enough yeah. to carry him to term. Right, and it, right. It, it's incredibly painful. I do feel like, because after... giving her just to eat, like, raw meat. Raw meat. Yeah. Um, and she does, after the scene that I'm about to describe, she does experience a better pregnancy, the pain goes away. So I always mm-hmm. assumed that maybe up until this point, there was a chance that there would be a miscarriage or something. Right. But uh, she she's in the kitchen crying with pain at this party. And a lot of her, like a handful of her female friends are in the kitchen with her and she's describing the pain she's experiencing. And they immediately believe her and they tell her this isn't normal you need to get a new doctor you need a second opinion what is he prescribing you what is he making you eat like this is ridiculous and I can't explain to you it goes back to that episode we did about um, not believing women in horror movies but the the relief I felt that people just were like yes you were in pain I believe you I believe you this is a problem it shouldn't be this way 
And like in my contemporary 2018 brain, this 1968 movie, I was like, yes, this is still a thing. And then when she explains to Guy what happened in the kitchen and that maybe she should go to a different doctor and get a second opinion, um, Guy calls her friends, quote, not very bright bitches. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And he insults her haircut again. Which <sighs> There's is, nothing redeemable about Guy. It is just terrible. He is the worst. That's another thing I'd like to know about the book. Is Guy, like, slightly more redeemable in the book, or is he just as despicable? Like, just I'll be an actor at any cost, and I'll say what I have to say to, to make it happen. Yeah. doesn't matter how much pain I put my wife through. Oh, I misery. know. Um, there is a funny, uh, well, well, it's probably only funny to me, but when I get drunk, there's a guy at her office named Lyle, and when... I love Lyle. Lyle's awesome. Lyle's great. He also shares the name of a movie called Lyle <laughs> that is Rosemary's Baby Updated is what I call it, and it's mm -hmm. about a lesbian couple, and it's just funny to see the updates, because in this, guy is a Broadway actor, like, trying to make it, and in right. uh, Lyle... The guy equivalent character is a DJ, like a famous, trying to be famous oh. DJ. Interesting. I like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But the worst part about Guy is he just doesn't even, he's like so spineless. He can't even really follow through with his decisions. Mm -hmm. Like he tries to be as far from present as he can be. Like even when she's getting excited about the pregnancy, like there's a scene where She's like, oh, my God, I can feel him kicking. And she, like, grabs his hand and puts it on her belly. And yeah. he just, like, retracts it in just disgust and, like, in horror. He's like, oh, my God. Yeah. And I, you're just <laughs> like, just at least, like, pretend to be excited for her. Like, you right. did this to her. Why can't you at least just act your way through this and, like, be more supportive of her and stop just berating her at every turn? Right. And one thing I do love that we're not going to get too much into in this episode because I think it's a different conversation than what we're having. But in the end, the baby is born. It's like a demon. Um, she has this reaction of horror. But then the the instincts, the maternal instincts overcome her and she mm -hmm. approaches and she's like, you should rock it this way. And I do love how Although quickly... Did, did the maternal instincts kick in because she was demanded to by... I felt the when the I... Although the females in the room were also like, you should be proud of this and you should be happy about this. I personally feel watching that movie that she experiences like genuine, this love. is my child. Yeah. 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 But I love how quickly the cult is like, we'll kill this guy here. We'll kill your... Like, we don't need him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love that. Like, he is... Yeah, he's completely His part expendable is done. now. We're we want you. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so she's, like, sedated, she has the child, and then they take it from her, and, yeah, it culminates in the final scene where she finds that secret uh, walkway through the closet that was referenced in the beginning of the film. Right. Um, and, yeah, comes up upon this satanic cult just hanging out with Lucifer's child. Yeah. But, yeah, and then there's the classic line where she comes up and she sees her baby for the first time and uh, clearly something's wrong with his eyes and she's got the line. She's like, what is wrong with his eyes? What have you done to his eyes? And it's just so brutal. And then one of the guys goes, he has his father's eyes. And then it's just like a chorus of hail Satan. Everyone's just screaming, hail Satan. Again. And like, I just have chills. Like yeah. it is the most, one of the most chilling, horrific moments in like 
the history of horror. All of this to say, Chandler and I could probably talk forever about Rosemary's Baby. I should have mentioned, but Chandler knows a lot about film. Um, mm, I just watch a lot of movies. I feel like you know a lot about film. I know some stuff. But this movie holds up, and it's a great movie. And it's a great movie that's pretty feminist, and it has a strong female character. But it was made by this terrible dude. And that is very dissonant. Uh, that mm-hmm. makes, that for me, it takes you out of watching it. Like maybe you can lose yourself in it, but then you'll sort of suddenly remember. Um, it pulls at your conscious, or at least it does for me. Um, you can't separate the two. You can't watch this movie without not completely at least thinking about it or having it on the, just in the back of your brain. No, yeah, not completely. And, and here we're using the specific example of Rosemary's Baby, but we could be talking about. The Cosby Show, Louie, Transparent, a billion other things that Kevin Spacey has done. Woody Allen, and we will come back to Woody Allen. Uh, whatever thing that is important to you that maybe shaped you that has been disrupted in this way. But for this episode, we got to talk about Roman Polanski, and we will. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Okay, so let's talk about Roman Polanski. Uh, One year after this film came out, Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, was murdered by the Manson family along with their unborn child in kind of a disturbingly similar thing that happened in Rosemary's Baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, Less than a decade post-Rosemary's Baby, Roman Polanski fled the United States for Europe after pleading guilty to having sex with a minor, 13-year-old Samantha Jane Gailey. He's been there for the last 40 years. Um, Another woman, Marianne Bernard, recently accused him of molesting her as a 13-year-old in 1975. Polanski is on the record as describing the Me Too movement as a collective hysteria. He's also said such gems like... The pill has changed greatly. The women of our times masculinizes her. It chases away the romance from our lives. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think he would just stay silent on those issues. You'd like to think like, so. Out of, out of all the people that are unqualified to talk about this movement, I think you might be one of the most unqualified. It's so fascinating, though, isn't it, that he was involved with this movie. Um, Earlier this year, this very year, Polanski was expelled from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and he is trying to appeal. I tried to get to the bottom of whether or not he still profits from his movies. I couldn't, but I think it's safe to say that he does. Um, And that's that's something that, for me, he he still gets money. He gets kickbacks anytime we stream Rosemary's Baby. Right. And for, for me, that is something that it's hard for me to, like like, go of, even though I've read many arguments where the author says, what is your measly whatever amount they're going to make? How does that compare to... The, they're not going to notice right. if, whether or not you do. But I notice. <laughs> right. It, yeah. Money. It, it does beg the question, if I go off of that premise of, if they're not making money from me, does that mean I'm okay with streaming it for free? Like, mm-hmm. where is the line there? Um, and I, I ask because I don't know. I have these kind of vague rules in my head, and I think a lot of us do, but ultimately, <laughs> they, they're that. They're vague rules. They're, 
just sort of, I can be okay with this and I can't be okay with this. And uh, like I said, it's and very And I feel personal. like the line is just drawn over different issues and in just in diff- at different levels of severity for different people. So yeah, it's really hard to just make a definitive rule like, and also it's just like, how do you even make a rule like that? It's so vague. Like if yeah. you do X and X and X, then your art should never be enjoyed ever again. Right. But if you do something that's like, not too bad or like eventually forgivable, then right. we can still watch your stuff or read your stuff. Like, I don't know. It's definitely got to be that if there's anything I am sure of, it's got to be on a case by case basis. And it's very subjective in terms of, you know, what one person would find. Like, I just can't enjoy this art anymore. Right. Another person might be able to just still separate right. the creator from the art itself. Cause there is an argument to be made about, the fact that once the art is out there in the world, it no longer becomes property of the creator. It is now everyone's. But I do think, and we're going to talk about this more later, I think it's just really difficult to separate the author from the work. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get into that more later. But one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this example of Rosemary's Baby is the added layer of how it did influence so many other movies and so many other television shows, other creators, um, how it still has these prescient gender issues and the fact that the audience is meant to side with Rosemary in the film. Maybe that's obvious to say, but not always when it's a female character in a horror movie. You're meant to be on her to side. To be on her side from start to finish. Yes, and I do want to say, please do not equate this with... Roman Polanski is a genius and therefore it's okay he gets a pass because that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, it, it's not okay what he did. And I I mean, who gets a pass anyway? And also, please don't equate this to, but he made a feminist movie. So it evens out because it doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. These are complex issues. There's no clear-cut answer, but those are not what we're saying at all. Um Dustin Hoffman tried that argument when John Oliver confronted him about harassment allegations at a Wag the Dog event, saying, I would not have made that movie if I didn't have an incredible respect for women. And all I can hear is Donald Trump saying, no one has more respect for women than me. (laughs) It doesn't even out. You can say that all you want, but it doesn't work. But you know who thinks he should get a pass, Roman Polanski, Uh, or at least a pass when it comes to film festivals in neutral countries? About 100 folks in the film community who signed a letter in 2009 demanding Roman Polanski's release after his arrest in Switzerland, including Martin Scorsese, Wes Anderson, David Lynch, and Woody Allen. And yes, it's time to talk about Woody Allen. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, boy, indeed. Um, are you a Woody Allen fan? I'm a big Woody Allen fan. Okay, this is great. Or at least great. I'm a fan of a lot of his films. Okay. Um, his silly ones, mm-hmm. like Take the Money and Run, mm-hmm. uh, Bananas. Mm-hmm. and his more serious ones. I think Manhattan is a fantastic film. But I remember when the first time I saw it, I think I was freshman in college. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, this flew? Everyone was cool with this? Like the <laughs> yeah. whole plot line of him dating a 17-year-old high school student. And right. he's clearly in his... I mean, he always looked older than... I, I could never tell what age he was back then, but he appeared to be in his 40s. Mm-hmm. Maybe 30s. Let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and say 30s. They say 30s. But it's still, it's like you, he's dating a 17-year-old high school student. And that's like a point of comedy in uh, many scenes. Like it's meant to be yeah. funny and laughed at. Right. 
Well, I am glad that you're here then. I'm going to quiz you about some things. Because um, I'm not that big of a Woody Allen fan, and it's not... I, I just haven't experienced much of his work, but um, I you know... You haven't seen Annie Hall? No. Oh, wow. Oh. I feel like everyone saw Annie Hall. All Annies are required to see every yeah. movie with an Annie in the title. You're right. That's I, a good rule. I'm faulting. <laughs> I am messing up on the rule of Annies. Uh, but in my defense, how do they spell it? Not the same Ooh, way. With an I-E. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. So I can wash my hands. There you go. <laughs> Don't worry about it. All right. So, yeah, Woody Allen. Uh, there's a whole other dimension to this Rosemary's Baby discussion, and that is Mia Farrow and one step removed from her, Woody Allen. Uh, when Rosemary's Baby started filming Mia Farrow, I didn't know this. She was married to Frank Sinatra. Right. When she was... I want to say 18. It could be like 21, but like super young. Yeah. She marries 50-year-old Frank Sinatra. He was 29 years older than her. Um, And they got divorced when Farrow refused to leave the set of Rosemary's Baby after filming went five weeks over, which was kind of like when I was reading articles about it, like, yeah, bomb-ass bitch. She didn't... Wait, so he... Wait, he divorced her? Yes. Because he's like, you gonna come home soon? And she was like, nah. No, I have to film. It's like, well, I'm divorcing you. Exactly. (laughs) That's a good Sinatra, Chandler. That's a good Sinatra. Where's my whiskey? Um, Okay, so enter Woody Allen. Mia Farrow and Woody Allen became life partners for many years. And they made a lot of films together, too. 13. Mm -hmm. Um, He had an affair with one of Farrow's daughters, Soon Yi, who was a teenage girl in his care. And they later got married. On top of that, there are allegations that Alan abused Pharaoh's younger daughter, Dylan, which Alan denies. And when asked about his relationship with Sun Yi, Alan famously said, or it wants what it wants. Yeah. In that case, that's never been truer. I just mm. can't. I don't. I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. I just don't understand how the heart could want that. If right. you helped raise this child, and then later married the child, or married the person, yeah. the adult that the child grew into. I, I'm just at a loss for words for how you could, like, where does the attraction begin? Right. Like, you have to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Is that one of those things where it's like, he knew, like, from way before she was a legal adult? It's like, oh, this is going to be the woman I marry one day? Or did he just wake up as soon as she was legal? He's like, oh, I think I love you now. Right. I'm no longer your... Legal guardian. Legal guardian. I'm now your husband. Oh, God. And lover. Yeah. It's... It's disgusting. Yeah, and this is one thing that, like I said, I... I haven't consumed a lot of Woody Allen's work, but I have friends, such as yourself, that have and are big fans. And one... One thing I heard when I was researching this is that it's tough because people felt a personal connection to Woody Allen. Like, when they're watching a Woody Allen movie, they think, that is me. I can Mm -hmm. connect to this person. And so when this comes out, it felt like his he was betraying them. It felt very personal. And, like, also it was sort of an indictment on themselves. Why did I feel connected to this person who turned out to be kind of gross right? and a predator. What does that say about me? And people who love his work, um, for something that you love to be taken away in that manner, 
that sucks. That really right. sucks. And like, I feel like the most many of the aspects you connect with Woody Allen on in a lot of his films are romantic aspects, like in terms of just courtship and right. uh, yeah, navigating a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that definitely makes it very icky and very just difficult to kind of um, square. Yeah, and I would your, imagine I've kind of experienced it in other non-Woody Allen types of entertainment, but it does make you question, for me at least, it makes me question, what was this set like on these movies? Or am I enjoying something that came at the pain of someone else? Mm-hmm. And what are we just ignoring that? Like, was right. everyone complicit in that? Did people know what was going on and they were determined to make a thing anyway and to make money anyway. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yeah, I don't know. Well, with the Woody Allen thing, like, I mean, that all happened after the string of movies that Woody Allen and Mia Farrow made, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, at least, you can at least watch those movies without <laughs> <laughs> knowing that Mia Farrow was complicit in anything. Right. Because that seemed to be a bombshell that was dropped, like... I can only imagine what everyone, the the friends, the media frenzy that would have caused, like, when it did happen. Oh, my goodness. But uh, kind of parallel, I'd like to make a comparison that's not near as creepy. Mm-hmm. But it did. it is a comparison I, I, I made the other day. Are you familiar with Celine Dion's husband? No, I am not. So it's not that he was her father or anything like that. But um, he was her manager. I can't remember his name, but he was her manager from the moment she kind of hit the scene and she hit the scene young, like from the moment like her voice developed. I think she was 12 or 13. Wow. And she, I think she was like singing French at first. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she met her manager slash future husband who is significantly older than her by probably 20, 30 years oh. uh, when she was 13. And I remember like watching some VH1 interview of her talking about her love for her husband and she just seems so steadfast and absolutely resolved in like her feelings and mm-hmm. like and and you know you can kind of see that she did stay with him until the end he died not too long ago actually um and she said love has no age and even while she was saying that and i believed her i was like this is kind of creepy yeah because you were 12 or 13 when you met him and he was working closely with you and then you guys you married him when you were, I think, I think she was like 19. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one funny thing before I get into serious things, you were, you mentioned this briefly before we came in here. And for some reason, I always mix up Celine Dion with Cher. <laughs> so I was picturing Cher <laughs> different. Um, but another thing that a lot of listeners have written into us about is grooming. And that'll be its whole separate episode. But it does sound like maybe there was an element of grooming involved in that it appears so yeah and it it does feel strange because it feels predatory to me when someone so much older is in a relationship with someone younger but at the same time it does it that uh, like love knows no age Mm -hmm. it's very effective messaging i don't know if it's good or bad i think it's mostly bad but there is a part of it where i'm like these are adult people I mean, what business is it of mine? Mm -hmm. But it does feel very predatory. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Especially since he just, like, he he worked with her so closely for so long. Yeah. When she was very young. Yeah. And not mature enough. 
Right. And like, make up her own mind. I mean, me looking back at me at even 21, 23, she didn't I know knew what she nothing. was doing. <laughs> she, we were all a bunch of Jon Snows. I do think that there is a more societal acceptance and perhaps even encouragement for men, older men, to find younger women. Mm-hmm. Um, so this brings us to <laughs> Manhattan, which you, you mentioned earlier. Um, and I haven't seen it. So if you want to talk about the basic plot, you kind of went into it. but uh, Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, like it mostly follows like his relationship with... Um, Diane Keaton's character, but before that relationship really takes off, he is the movie opens with him in a relationship with a 17-year-old high school student who's very ambitious and she's in she's like, you know, studying to be, I can't remember something in a scholarly sense, she's ambitious um as a young high schooler, like going to college for the first time. Um yeah, he pretty much the whole time tells her, like, this is like a fleeting thing. You're going to meet somebody in college and it's going to be great, but you and I are having fun right now. And she is like desperately in love with him. And like, he makes her cry because he just keeps telling her, it's like, this is not going to work out. Like, mm-hmm. you're in high school. And the whole time you're like, I mean, even the first time I saw this, even after I, this was before I knew about, um, you know, his whole Mia Farrow marriage thing, I was like, this is weird and creepy. Yeah, because from what I I understand, laugh at this. They don't ever address it as being weird or strange. No, no, they don't. It's just kind of accepted, and like people question him for dating her in the sense that like she's too young for you. You should find somebody that's more like your, I guess, intellectual contemporary. contemporary. Yeah, Yeah. Um, but they're never like, hey, this girl's in high school. This is creepy. This is. You know, you some people consider you should go to jail for this. Right. You know? Nobody ever questions that. Right. And he wrote this into the script. This isn't like, you know, something that happened. Like, he willingly, like, came up with this. Right. Maybe he was priming the audience for his future intentions. Maybe. <laughs> I, I'm not sure when this happened, like, compared to, like, when the news broke of... Sunni. Sunni, yeah. Yeah, I'm from, I read essay after essay about this film. Um, <laughs> I never watched it, but I have read many essays. And from what I understand, the viewers are meant to see Tracy, this is a 17-year-old's name, mm-hmm. um, as far superior to the other women in the movie who are bitter and think too much and don't have good sex, maybe because they think too much. Definitely the think too much thing, for sure. Yeah, there's a whole joke in there that I, I like read it, and I understood that Woody Allen thought I should be on his side, but I was on all of the bitter women's side. <laughs> like, no, they're they're actually right. <laughs> you, I don't think you get this. Um, Tracy seems unaware of her mortality, um, and by having sex with her, Isaac, which is Woody Allen's character, um, can forget his mortality as well. And he lists her face as one of the reasons to go on living. Um, so I guess we can add objectification to the list. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it just seems like such an interesting and kind of a horrifying, like, parallel to what really happened. Yeah, it's definitely life imitating art, vice versa, art imitating life, like... There's no, there's no getting around that. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, like, I, after, like, all this has become more talked about 
in um, in the the public consciousness. I actually haven't watched Manhattan in a long time since college, but it was definitely one of my favorite Woody Allen films. But the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I think there's a reason why I haven't gone back to it. Yeah. It, definitely subconsciously, I don't think I've ever explicitly stated, like, I'll, never, like, watch I'll never watch this movie again. Right. But I've definitely gone back to Annie Hall and some of his other films, but and Crimes and Misdemeanors, but yeah, not that one. Well, it's interesting that you say that because uh, a lot of the information I got about this whole thing, because... Again, I haven't seen it. I got from Claire Detterer's article, What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men, over at the Paris Review. And it came with a quote that I had to include because it speaks to me so much. The women were wondering why their partners and children didn't do the dishes more. The women were realizing the invidiousness of the dishwashing paradigm. Yes, everyone knows I hate washing dishes. But also she (laughs) said, like, she was a huge Woody Allen fan. And it took her a lot to go back to movies like... Annie Hall, but she could not watch Manhattan again. Mm-hmm. She couldn't get over it. Yeah, it it's just ickier and ickier. The more I think about it, that's it's quite possible I'll never see that movie again. Yeah. If not, if I do see it again, it'll be for different reasons. More to look at it through this lens and be like, well, let's yeah. really study that. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and uh, Durder also mentions how when she's critiquing a work in this way, that many people, often men, will argue back with her when she says, I can't watch Manhattan again. Something along the lines of, it's a work of genius, or you have to judge it on a technical level. And these are arguments I have heard myself. And to me, this relates a little bit to privilege when a person can connect more to the artist than the person of the artist that is wronged. And I am not above that, exempt from that at all. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you can connect to the artist in that way, then you are more able to excuse or defend their work. Um, And and these are... I'm definitely guilty of that with John Lennon specifically. Sure. Well, and to me, these are are inconsistent moral calculations that we all make all the time. Mm -hmm. Um... Like, the Republican Party is a great example. Sure, Brett Kavanaugh might have assaulted someone, but he might overturn Roe v. Wade, which is how a lot of Republicans, I assume, justified their support of him in their heads. They didn't voice this out loud. But, you know, you make these trade-offs. Mental gymnastics. I've said before on this show, and I'll say it again, I think people can do amazing mental gymnastics mm-hmm. to, to paint themselves in a certain light and to keep liking something that they really like. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of like uh, Rosemary's Baby inspiring something like Hereditary, a film like Hereditary, like in the same with the way that like the Beatles music has completely changed the landscape of rock and pop. Mm-hmm. And you really can't separate their music from the the timeline we're in and the way music has progressed over the years. Yeah. So how do you even like listen to music, period? Because I can't tell you how many songs remind me of this Beatles song or that Beatles song. Right. I mean, that's a great question. That's a great question. I not have... that it's defensible, but at least John Lennon admitted <laughs> his transgressions and said, like, you know, I had a problem. One argument against that, that train of thought is how much art from women and from people of color, other marginalized groups that we never got to consume or they never got to make because of the barriers we societally put in place for them. So that is something to keep in mind 
when we have this conversation. I feel like now it's almost hard for me to enjoy anything completely holistically without that like lingering thought in my head Mm -hmm. of who did this person hurt to get to where they are, which is horrible, Mm -hmm. but also probably very true. Yeah. Um, It reminds me, I think I've mentioned before on the show, um, when I took the GREs, the GRE exam, uh, <laughs> there, there was yes, a, the GRE, the old GRE exam. There was a question on there that said, um, basically, it was like, and these are modern times of news coverage. It can there be anything close to approximating a hero? And I said no, because there's too much information about someone. There's no heroes out there. No heroes out there. Maybe there's got to be one. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I feel like I'm jaded too, but there's got to be one. Maybe. Maybe. Mr. Rogers. God, I live in fear that something terrible will come out about him. That would be the end of humanity. I'm going under, I'm just going to go underground and never I would give up if (laughs) it came out something was wrong with Mr. Rogers. Yeah, I didn't learn about him until I was in college, and the more I read about him and the more I was just like, this is a beautiful human person. Yeah. Um, It's a being of pure light. Oh. And love. I hope so. I hope so. All right, but back to <laughs> Woody Allen and this article by Derderer. She points out um, who gets to judge genius? Why is it that feelings, especially of a woman in this case, evoked when consuming a piece of art aren't valid? That they aren't watching it correctly, that they aren't feeling the right things, that it's a failing on their part for not being able to separate the art from the probably male artist. Um, would it have been just as gross if the Sunyi situation wasn't going on? This is no. a good question, yeah? No, because at the very least, you could justify it like, oh, those are improper or inappropriate thoughts, mm-hmm. but not inappropriate actions. I mean, you can you can fault a lot of people for inappropriate thoughts, but at the very least, they don't. those thoughts don't act harm anybody, them. and they don't act on them. Yeah. Right. So... Yeah, I would rather it be that. Than the real-life example Than the real-life example, to. yeah. Right. Um, uh, and this is something that, like, beyond a personal level, people are struggling with on an academic level. I read many accounts of professors saying they wouldn't want to show Rosemary's Baby in their classrooms um, unless they had given context for the situation. Um, or they, they wouldn't watch it outside of a classroom, period. But all of this. <laughs> or can we just remove Polanski? From, I mean, yes, he is responsible for just this perfectly or near perfectly crafted film. Mm-hmm. But can we remove him from this, from the whole equation in the sense that he didn't come up with the story? And it is a perfectly faithful adaptation of the book. Well, that is Let's something. Let's attribute it all to the author. That is something that makes it interesting. Uh, um and again, those are those gradations. Yeah, those mental moral, gymnastics. Yeah, yeah, like some people have argued it that way, that mm-hmm. I can separate it out because really he was just directly transcribing this book that someone else did. Who knows what the author did? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know anything about him. He, I don't know. I don't want to slander him Please, unnecessarily. No. But yeah, again, for some people, that's okay. Mm-hmm. For some people, that's enough, and for some people, it's not. And that's kind of the whole point of this conversation. And 
like I said, it's frustrating, but it is, it's, it's all about you and your, your consumption of art and how your life experiences and how they meet this piece of art and how it impacts you. And how you learn about a lot of these terrible, you know, transgressions, like after the fact that you've already consumed this art and it has become ingrained in your psyche. Right. It is a part of who you are. Yeah. At least in terms of, you know, your your worldview and your appreciation of art in general. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um we do have we do have some possible answers. <laughs> uh heavy <laughs> quotes. But first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. All right. So a couple of people have written about this whole thing of how do we how do we handle this art? How do we consume this art? Um, Matt Zoller Seitz is one of them, and he wrote about this whole thing in regards to Jeffrey Tambor uh, over at Vulture. And he asserts that it was never our job, our being the audience, um, to separate the art from the artist. It was Jeffrey Tambor's job or the artist's job. He messed up. And now the art suffers for it. And it's a ripple effect, too, because movies and TV aren't made in a vacuum like we were talking about. There are loads of people who didn't do awful things involved. There and are dozens of us. <laughs> dozens! <laughs> dozens! Uh, Sice points out that Arrested Development, a show that I love uh, and that Tambor was a part of, is easier to stomach than watching something like House of Cards because, in theory... You could skip scenes with Jeffrey Tambor in them in Arrested Development, but you can't True. really skip scenes with Kevin Spacey in them in House of Cards. No, he is. That's a Kevin Spacey vehicle. Yeah. And I feel like that's a proper distinction to make. Like, there are plenty of movies out there. Um, oh, Glengarry Glen Ross, good example. Um, Kevin Spacey's in it. I can still watch it. Right. 100%. It's not a Kevin Spacey vehicle. He definitely plays a prominent role. Mm -hmm. And his scenes are going to be tough to watch because the whole time we'll be like, you are a person. Yeah. But, like, you know, I can't not watch that movie. It's got Pacino. It's got Alec Baldwin in his best performance. I feel like we're going to be watching this later because I've never seen it. You've never seen it? Chandler and Annie. I need to take you on a, on a mammoth marathon. A mammoth marathon. A mammoth marathon. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> sure. Well, all of this goes again to show how many considerations there are when you are calculating this whole thing. To me, and I think for a lot of people, knowing this stuff about someone, knowing that they've done something terrible, uh, it takes you out of it. And it makes you wonder what went into this art that you love that was heinous. Um, things that other people tried to cover up or ignored. And thinking about this and doing research for this, to me, it makes more sense than ever that you can't separate yourself from the artist. You can try, like you can, you can approach and do your best. But to me, like that's what art is. You're bringing yourself and your experiences to a piece of art and you're experiencing it on a personal level. So if you know in your life that this person did this thing and that maybe it relates to something that's happened to you or something that's happened to someone you love, you can't separate yourself from that. I think that you can get very close, but I don't think you can. I also think there's levels to it depending on the medium um, in terms of like film and TV. 
as we already stated, I think multiple times now, like it takes, the, you know, hundreds, yeah. potentially thousands of people to make a single season of television or a single film. Um, so it is also the creative input of many other people besides that one or possible more, um, yeah. bad person. Whereas something like stand-up comedy, you are definitely getting the person. Like the art is almost who the person is. Yeah. 100%. Or maybe not 100%, but definitely a high percentage, you know? Like, it's very hard to differentiate the art. You can't separate Louis C.K.'s jokes from Louis C.K. Right. Yeah. And I think depending on all of these, this scale, whatever scale you have in your head of I can accept this, I can't accept this. Um, and depending, like, unfairly or not, whether or not, like, it was the lead actor and they are the ones that did the thing. I think that's more difficult just because they're right in your face the whole time. The whole time, exactly. Or, like, the director. I I was devastated when I learned that, um, not director, but uh, Harvey Weinstein produced Scream, which is one of my favorite movies. Right. I didn't know it. Uh, <sighs> I mean, that's another one where the producer in general seems to act as the the money man, the guy that gets it done, mm -hmm. gets the movie made, but doesn't really have much artistic input. So that's at least in terms of my mental gymnastics. <laughs> Weinstein, yeah, he's had his hand in uh, so many films that I love. Yeah. that To me, it's like the Beatles. Would you call that a paradox? The Beatles paradox, the conundrum. The conundrum, yeah, um, yeah, the conundrum, where it's like it's almost impossible to separate, yeah, all of the movies he produced, and say like, well, can't watch any of those. Right. Another thing that I wanted to bring up before we close out here is, what about the monstrous acts uh, committed by those that are long dead? Um, uh, the books that we read in school that we know, people. <laughs> is there a statute of limitations? Well, exactly. I feel like these feel different, um, and I haven't be, been able to voice a good reason why, other than maybe, like, it's easier to separate ourselves from that time. It's easier to justify, like, oh, yeah, it was a different time. And it also just feels like, that dude's dead. Right. <laughs> Whereas, like, this guy's my contemporary, and mm -hmm. he's living in my same times and committing these things. Um yeah. Yeah, uh, it's still hard for me to completely detach, um, but it does feel as though they're not completely real just because they're long gone. Mm -hmm. um, and the same level of connection isn't there because they were living in a different time than you, potentially a different, I mean, you could say a different world than you. They had different concerns, but people who live in our time... They they share the same concerns. They share the same time. It's harder. Are you thinking of a specific example? I'm just curious uh, um, of like an old work where the creator's dead and and he was not a good person. Not a specific example, mm -hmm. no. But uh, I just know recently this came up when I was in a lift and the lift driver was very angry um, about what had happened to James Franco and uh, <laughs> he bought up. Some examples of like, well, what about this book where this author did this thing in right. the 1800s? And mm -hmm. um, there, there's a website called Rotten Apples. And it's like Rotten Tomatoes, but you can use it to see if any creeps were involved in a particular piece of art. And 
I assume after you see this, you would avoid that piece of art. But um, uh, their claim is to make ethical media consumption easier, but it's pretty inconsistent with how it defines creep. Um, Like if you type in Johnny Depp, he won't pop up as a creep. It goes to show, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. how hungry we are for a simple solution when one does not exist. We want to go to a website and have them tell us. Don't watch this, Please watch this. Please just give me a list of things I can enjoy. Yeah. So I don't have to make the decision for myself. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, way. yeah, if we're sounding judgmental, I am not. I'm assuming you are not because I would love that too. It'd be nice. Yeah, but it doesn't exist. It, it is a very personal thing. Um, in the end, it's up to you and how you engage with it or, or how you don't engage with it. Um, but to end on a semi-happy note, we can push for change as consumers. Like maybe we can't change too much in the past, mm-hmm. but moving forward, we can. Um, and I think that we should. Being vocal about the changes we want to see is is one way that a lot of us, we can we can do that. Kevin Spacey was replaced in All the Money in the World, which of course was largely a financially motivated decision, but it was also thanks to people pushing for it on social media. You can vote with your dollars in what art you support. And like we said in the beginning, the fact is, this is a symptom of a much larger problem that um, we're going to have to tackle. Um, if someone's a jerk or worse, they don't get a pass. Um, stop hiring them. If you can, don't work with them. Let others know about their bad behavior. And I know these things are easier said than done, especially when you're you're just starting out. Um, on sets, make sure there's a healthy work environment for everyone. Hold people accountable for their actions, no matter how big, quote, they are, or how much of a genius they are, or if they're your friend. Like we said in our episode on what if the accuser is a man, accountability only works if it's for everybody. Make way for different storytellers, folks who have been kept out of this arena. Hire more women and minorities in leadership positions. We've seen in the case of Weinstein, the Weinstein Company, and Mario Batali's company, women taking over leadership of these companies and making decisions on how to proceed, which might include letting something go away completely to make way for something else, something new. Thank you so much for being with us today, Chandler. I appreciate it. Um, I'm, I've been very nervous this whole time, so please don't, please don't <laughs> slay me. I'm, this is my second podcast I've ever been a part of. <laughs> Yes. I'm generally behind the scenes. I'm an engineer and uh, editor. So. Yes. Yeah. And he is a good friend of mine, and I asked him to do this, and he agreed. <laughs> so, yes, please be kind to Chandler. Uh, I'm sure we're going to go have a, a fun movie marathon later. <laughs> and um, for you listeners, I know this isn't like the most wrapped up, tied up of answers. Probably very frustrating. But if you have a, a way that you deal with this or that you've approached this, please email us. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. Thank you as always to our producer, Andrew Howard, and thanks to you for listening. 